Tuesday, May 20th, 2014, and this is episode 68 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and with me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, good evening. Good to see you. Likewise, likewise. So, just uh, before we start, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours, and not those of our employer, past, present, or future. So you... if you like our thoughts and want to be our employer, <laughs> future employer, <laughs> we're always open to negotiation. Ah, touche. So, uh, so I had a I had a brief conversation with Bob, and he wanted me to pass on a, a kind of a parable of sorts or, or or a lesson that he learned, perhaps a fable, a fable, Bob's yeah. fables, Bob's fables. Kind of like Aesop's Fables, but Bob's Fables. So anyhow, yeah. um, let's say you have uh, you know a relatively complicated application environment, and you do the normal thing where you have you know test, development, production, kind of different tiered environments, and for some unknown reason, um, <clears throat> you you botch the uh, the firewall and. Your let's say your dev servers are exposed to the internet and have SSH running, and let's further say that you uh, don't have a root password set, and and let's even further say that you allow remote root logins. It doesn't take very long for people to uh, to find that, and and unfortunately. Sometimes there's a path from that development environment to the production environment, and and so so Bob, what Bob wanted me to express is that if you've ever watched uh, the the modern Marvel show they're called Engineering Disasters, right? There's, <laughs> there's 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 one thing in common, and it's that you know there isn't one thing that goes horribly wrong. It's a whole train of things that go horribly wrong. And and what Bob wanted me to to impress upon everybody is that you know there were there there's so many opportunities to catch something like that. If the firewall rule was in place, if you had a password, if SSH wasn't running, if if the dev servers didn't have access to the production environment, there are so many opportunities. Use them. You know, try to try to use those layers of security and you know pay attention that was uh that was what bob wanted me to, to pass on yeah no it's a it's a wonderful point and not to bring it back to aviation which i try to do at every possible opportunity but there's something extremely similar taught in aviation risk management called the air chain which is exactly that an accident typically doesn't occur because of one thing it's a series of events and any if any of those events had been caught and went a series of bad events, I should say, or incorrect decisions or incorrect actions. If any of those had been caught, it would have stopped the air chain. 
and uh, very, very similar, right? You know, catch catch it before it happens. It's very rarely just one thing that causes it. Yeah, and I think in, in, in particular what Bob wanted me to, you know, to really pass on was that in this particular case, the development servers were not very well cared for, you know, so, so it wasn't, they weren't really paid attention to. And, and so uh, that probably led in this, in Bob's particular case to how that happened. And I don't know if this, if similar kinds of things happen in the aviation world where, you know, a tertiary system goes out and people don't pay attention to it or, or what have you. But, you know, that, that, well, look, you, you know, you've got to understand how these things can interplay. And just because something seems like an unimportant development server that doesn't have any real material um, bearing on anything, it still provides a potential path into your environment and can do lots of bad stuff. Very true. And uh, I feel for Bob. Yeah, he's got a hard job. It's uh... You know, his job would be great if it weren't for all the users. That's all I'm saying. That's that's true. Well, not only all the users, but all the uh, you know the sysadmins and IT people and uh, sure executives. Pretty much anyone with an account. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Or the ability to plug or unplug cables. <laughs> so, speaking of tough jobs, uh, apparently the U.S. Department of Justice has been very busy with a tough job, and they have released an indictment against five members of the notorious Chinese government alleged hacking gang known as APT-1, a.k.a. Unit 61398, a.k.a. a whole bunch of other things that I don't remember. And uh, the, the story we have on this comes from Ars Technica. The title is How China's Army Hacked America this has really been all over the news. I, I mean, I, th- I think I, I saw it on uh, Good Morning America or something. I, that's not a, <laughs> that's not an admission that I watched Good Morning America. By the way, the wife had it on. My wife had it on. Good Morning America, cutting edge infosec news. I know it's like Reddit last week. <laughs> anyway, um, the the point I wanted to bring up here is, you know. <laughs> that the the indictment shed a little bit of light and i don't think it it brought a lot more than we saw in the apt1 report from mandiant last year but it it kind of codifies at least um from the government's perspective what they think happened and the the allegation is that this group used what i would characterize as pretty prolific spear phishing attacks against a whole bunch of companies to steal a whole bunch of documents. And I, I thought this was worth mentioning because this tactic is super effective. Yeah, and not difficult. And and not, and not difficult. Difficult. And I'm I'm extraordinarily concerned at how easy this is to pull off that, you know, any any two bit criminal now is probably gonna be you know, <laughs> copying this, these tech, these techniques. And in particular, some of the tactics that they used were, were a little insidious. You know, in one case, they, uh, they allegedly posed as a board member of, I think it was Alcoa. 
And they sent an they sent an email uh, purporting to be this board member with a copy of the the annual the shareholder annual meeting agenda, and that contained the malware. You know that's that's like a classic right out of somebody's slide deck of how to do this. Right. You know, it went to 19 folks, senior folks at uh, Alcoa. And, and, and the thing that I wanted to highlight is who are the people who who most often reject controls or training? Uh, could that be, oh, I don't know, executives? That could be. Could be. And and so... No, wait, wait, follow up. Who are the people with the most sensitive information? Yes, there you go, executives. <laughs> In some cases. And this is going to be fun when we get to the story about the $6 million in uh, oh. Vosek funding pulled. Absolutely. Foreshadowing. <laughs> Mind you, when I'm an executive, I will not have this problem. No, you just won't read your email, will you? <laughs> that's, my, that's my solution. <laughs> uh, anyhow... I, I, you know, I think the lesson here is that, again, senior executives are being targeted to, and they're, they're probably among the most vulnerable. There's been numerous reports. We've even talked about a bunch in you know, shows long ago about surveys that were done which show that executives are even more susceptible to phishing attacks than the average employee for, for probably a variety of reasons. Uh, and at the same time, you know, they have elevated access. People don't question their their actions, and on and on and on. So, you know, that that's that's really something that I think organizations have to come to terms with, and that, that there's no easy way to do that. You know, agreed. And one thing I would say is, don't get wrapped around the axle on the vector here. I I would say that it doesn't matter if it came by a spear phishing or something else. It is still malware. It's still getting on the machine. Yep. You know, I think a smart InfoSec group would have different levels of sensitivity or different levels of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, concern or different levels of stance for their security stance that they have on different machines. I don't think, you know, the average guy in the mailroom needs to have probably the same level of controls that your executive has on his machine and his laptop. And which, yeah. by the way, is, is you know... <laughs> Not how they like it to work. No, it's a one-size-fit-all methodology, uh, and 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 they want the least amount of controls. Exactly. Um, you know, if it were me, if I could get away with it, I probably would just be assuming that these boxes are completely getting hosed on a regular basis, and you go to some sort of burner virtualization model, um, whitelisting, something that you know assumes that these boxes are highly hostile. And their environment is highly hostile, and just assumes they're going to get going to get popped, um, and and just go at it that way. Stop trying to, you know. Uh, so that's a really good point, and, and you know, you you made me think of something interesting. I know in in a lot of especially larger companies, uh, the, the some of the top executive teams tend to have their own help desk, and they will often right. have spare equipment and, and things mm-hmm. on standby because, you know, the CEO or the CFO or the COO, they don't want to be without a laptop. If they're mm-hmm. if their computer blue screens, they want to call up the gold help desk and say, you know, bring me my, bring me number three. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, frankly, understandably so, right? Yeah, absolutely. They, they have important things to do. Their downtime is very costly to the company. I, I'm not begrudging that. 
No, but I think I guess the, the point I was I was trying to get to was you know may, maybe there's an opportunity there to you know to work in a, a proactive mm-hmm. swap out program where you know I don't know once a week or on some oh, periodic yeah. basis you just you rotate. I mean, you could even do that with virtualization as well, but yes. Yeah. Um, you know, there's micro virtualization tools out there now that virtualize just the browser, for instance, and burn that virtualization instance on a regular basis, assuming the browser is going to get popped or the browser instance. Uh, you know, it's, it's somewhat cutting-edge technology. It's not, I don't know if that's fully, fully, fully baked yet, but it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, it's like whenever I'm consulting with someone who's planning to go to China, I yeah. tell them, take burner gear and burn it. There's yep. a very high likelihood that you're going to get something implanted on that machine when you're overseas. That's true. Or apparently over here, by the way. Yeah, which we don't have in the story list, but I just added it to my notes. I do want to talk about that. Okay. So so that was, uh, you know, I, I guess the only other thing I wanted to mention on this, this particular story is that when your adversary, and I, I've mentioned this a bunch of times in the past, when your adversary is a foreign government or foreign intelligence agency is really, really difficult to, uh, you know, to, to block every opportunity for them to do something. If they're really focused on getting you, they're probably going to get you. And at some point you have to make a decision about how important it is for your particular business, uh, to keep them out at all cost, or, you know, at, at, I guess, reasonable cost, because you can spend a whole bunch of money, uh, on that, right? You know, yeah. I, I certainly I don't. I'm not a proponent that saying that uh, of saying that we shouldn't take reasonable precautions and be defeatist about the whole thing. But I think at some point we have to be cognizant that some of these organizations can outspend us, you know, a hundred times to one. Well, you can't take risk to zero. Exactly. You just can't. And there is a there is a point where you're spending more than it makes sense to spend, and perhaps you're better off buying. You know, for lack of a better term, cybersecurity insurance. There you go. You know, or something something along those lines to help offset some of that risk. Right. Right. Now, the flip side is, don't just freaking ignore it. Right? Don't uh, pretend it's not happening. Exactly. Don't <laughs> right? make it easy. Don't make it Which easy. Is what a lot of executives are doing right now. Absolutely. All right, well, let's move on to the next story. This is not exactly the normal InfoSec story, but I thought it was interesting to bring up and possibly amusing. The title, well, actually, it comes from uh, InfoSecNews.org. The title is Emory University Windows Network Wiped Out. Blame EMPs, Cyber War, or Squirrels? Try Accidental Reformat. This is pretty epic. This is absolutely epic. So during the commencement exercises, apparently not the commencement itself, I, I looked that up, uh, some some un, uh, probably currently unemployed person accidentally uh, set off a job on their SCCM server to push down Windows 7 images to about 2,000 or slightly more Laptops, desktops, and servers, and and it reinstalled Windows Seven and repartitioned and reformatted the hard drives of all those computers, which interestingly also included the SCCM server that started this whole process. That is awesome. Yeah. So uh, so it took them 
quite a long time to recover. You know, I have to say there there's uh, there was quite a lot of chatter going on, and I know that Emery had a running blog about this, and they were actually being pretty open about what had happened and what they were doing to recover. They weren't, you know, they weren't trying to hide it. So, you know, I guess I'll give them a, a cookie for that, but holy cow, this is... Well, you know, it points out so many good studies of certain systems, certain people have an immense amount of power and trust in the organization. Yeah. And this clearly, nobody's indicated this was malicious. This was merely a mistake based on all accounts I've seen. But mistakes happen. So are you taking into account in your organization where a mistake like this could happen? And how are you putting some sort of control around it so it wouldn't, right? Being able to do this, and I have no idea what sort of exact code they were running, um, but maybe there's a way to, you know, have like the dual key turn for the missile launches before you start pushing out to more than one machine or something, you know, along those lines. Uh, it's just a matter of thinking through these scenarios and thinking through these situations, and hey, here's a great example of what if, the, what if this was malicious code that came in and did this? Yeah, that that was what what struck me was you know holy moly, what if you know what if somebody what if somebody got on your SCCM server what, right I mean, this, and just geez. wanted wanted to be difficult right? What's your DR like? What's your recovery plan like? Yeah. Um, now you could start driving yourself crazy thinking through every pocket case that could possibly happen in your organization, and I'm not suggesting that. You've got to stack rank these in order of likelihood and priority and impact. But look, this happens. Yeah, it, it's you can't say it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, maybe the SCCM server should have a little extra control and oversight on it. That's all. That is crazy talk, Jerry. I, I know, I know. And by the way, this is. Not unlike what happened in South Korea early last year, you know, where where the uh, the Dark Soul malware was pushed out from, uh, I think it was the OnLabs management console. Right. Holy moly! Anyhow, um, I care careful those centralized management servers, guys. Yeah, I hope that guy has his resume up to date. That's unfortunate. well, you know, and not to bring it back to Target. You might have heard some, something happened at Target not too long ago. Really, Target? Yeah. That's my favorite, by the way. Whenever a vendor brings that up or or anybody is in presentation, they mention Target. I raise my hand, and say, "Wait, what? What happened at Target?" They don't they don't like me in meetings. Um, there was a lot of talk of that centralized management server. We don't know for sure if it had anything to do with it, but one centralized server that was controlling all the POSs. So we don't know if that was somehow involved in the attack, but... Yeah, it got there. It, it got out there somehow. It's a highly sensitive system, and yeah. you should treat it as such. It's not just there for your convenience. It's there for the bad guy's convenience, too. That's right, and they will use it. All right, so moving on to our next story, which comes from the Register... The title is How Execs Snatched $6 Million Budget from His InfoSec Team Because He Couldn't See the ROI. This story Ooh. made me angry. Yes. So there's a, there's a group called the Australian Information Security Association, or ASA, remarkably like, like Asia, but not exactly. 
And uh, they're in the process of interviewing about 150 executives of of Australian company boards of directors. But but Jerry, we're not in Australia. How is this relevant to us? Well, I, I mean, it, you just have to turn everything upside down. Okay. And then it's it's all the same otherwise. <laughs> but <laughs> anyhow, um, the the. Interestingly, they've only gone through 10 interviews so far. So less than 10% of of uh, of their interviews have been completed. And already they've come up with some pretty interesting results. One of their interviews resulted in a conversation with a, with a uh, board of director who apparently proudly uh, announced that he had revoked $6 million dollars of a of an a budget of an a normally, I guess what I would characterize a normal uh, annual budget for security because he didn't see the return on investment, and and apparently what's uh, what seems a little worse to me is that this budget was allegedly required for complying with PCI, and, uh, and instead this. Uh, this security person was told to make do with what he had. So that's, um, boy, that's some, some tough love there. Well, and the way it's written must also, I think, reflect a little bit of, of the way the board member looks at it. But we'll get into this with a few more examples here. But, you know, he approved... He didn't approve it because of the InfoSec geeks, quote-unquote, failed to produce evidence of return on investment. Yeah. Now, yeah. I don't want to interrupt the retelling of the rest of the story here, but this is a fundamental problem and a fundamental communication breakdown when it comes to security spend, return on investment. And, you know, we could spend a whole show just talking about that topic. Maybe we will one day. But I do want to circle back around to that and, and you know, there's blame to go around here on this one, but let, let's continue. No, I, I think you're on you're on a good point. So so they interviewed another another board member, and uh, this board member says, and I'm, I'm trying to find the uh, the actual quote that uh, board members did not understand technology gobbledygook. Uh, at least one board member seemed hostile. He said the former top chief executive said he would never. Uh, expletive again place a top techno or technology expert on the board after a failed I- experiment to bring IT into the C-suite. So basically, um, what what they're saying here is that um, they apparently tried an experiment where they pulled in some technology person up into the in, into the rank executive ranks or upper executive ranks, and it failed miserably. And my interpretation is that the the technical people and I, like you said there's there's blame to go around but i have to wonder if if more of the blame is on the technology people for not being able to bridge the gap to the business talk right or you know to, to business requirements jerry let me ask you a question Go ahead. You're running a business. You're running a multi-billion dollar public business. Yep. And let's just say you're the CFO for Kicks. Mm-hmm. And 
your outside CPA or legal counsel tells you, we need to do X, Y, Z because the law dictates. If you don't do X, Y, Z, you're going to get fined. By the way, this is a highly technical thing that's really complicated. It has to do with complex tax code and law. Uh, So go do X, Y, Z. How often do executives, I'm not saying it happens never, but how often would executives say, screw you CPA or lawyer guy, I don't understand what you're talking about, so I'm just not going to do it? Probably not often, and and I think that highlights the, the fundamental problem, which is one of trust. And, well, trust and or respect. Well, trust and or respect, but also I think there's there's probably, given the pedigree of most executives, which which are typically more aligned with the MBA and, and financial programs, I suspect there are less opportunities for that kind of, you know, mysterious type of, of thing to, to occur than on the technical side. And I think the other the other problem I suspect is you know, IT is kind of a, you know, it's been around for for a while now, but especially security is, you know, we're, we're kind of the black hole, right? And so you, you've, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad, I, I don't want to say bad, right? But maybe ineffective is a better word, security programs out there that waste a lot of money. And I think that drags everybody down. And so I think generally we get a we get a, bad, a bit of a bad name and some executives don't have a lot of respect for it. And we end up with this. I agree. Um, I, I understand that you are blaming the educational institutions of the United States for the MBA programs failing to equip the executives. I get that. That's fine. Um, <laughs> Touche. Another favorite quote here is another interviewed board member shrugged off the risk of fines for non-compliance under Australia's privacy reforms, opting instead to pay the watchdog's fines that could reach $1.7 million, a figure cheaper than the technology investment to keep the commissioner happy. Okay, so we've got to sort of translate this a little bit into you know, other countries' laws, but the same concept applies. They're saying, hey, the fine's cheaper than than the the fix I need to put in place. Isn't that just so incredibly disrespectful to their customers, though? And their employees are, you know, in this case, it's a privacy reform, right? So they're basically saying, screw you. We don't give a damn about privacy. We'll pay your damn fine. Yeah. And hopefully the free market will smack them into oblivion for that. But um, there's one other in here that that blew me away, Uh, you know, he appealed to vendors to stop coming up with jargon words like "quote unquote" cyber, which I kind of agree, which confuses board execs. When you say cyber, we think we think we're off to watch Star Trek. He said, "I don't disagree with that statement that you're not translating information security well in that case. Cyber, how the however, has been around since 1990, whatever. I think it was coined by William Gibson." You can't hide behind that. Screw you, executive, if cyber makes you go, oh, I'm afraid. No, no, no. Sorry, no. But in general, I agree that the information security guys have got to do a better job communicating in terms of business risk and business reality and business opportunity to their boards. But for the boards to stick their head in the sand, especially in light of everything that's going on in the world today with 
major headlines breaking all the time, I think is arrogant. I think it's wrong. And I hope these people go to business. Well, given enough time, they very well may. But, uh, you know, I don't think they'll all go out of business. And, uh, I mean, I know firsthand I've had experience where people have made value decisions like that where the potential fine is less than the, you know, the, the, the cost to address the fine. And therefore, sure. you know, we're going to, yeah, it's a business, I get that. it's a business decision. You know, it's a, it's a risk that you're willing to take. I tweeted out a, an article. It was on CNBC the other day about how businesses have to have to take risks and it had nothing to do with information security. hundred percent agree with you there, right? There's always a risk in business and you're always balancing risk versus reward and you can never get to zero with risk. I just think these guys came across as really arrogant about oh, it. Oh, uh, no question. But at the same time, I, I you know what 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 strikes me, and maybe it's a cultural thing with Australians. I have no idea. It seems more like a British attitude to me. Sorry, people in Britain, but um, <clears throat> where was I going with that? Um, I I think that. We're not going to, we are not going to change the mindsets of CEOs and, and COOs. I don't think. I mean, unless we, we do a really big, you know, push into the, the MBA programs and, you know, and then, and then wait 60 years. Uh, I, I just don't think that's going to work. So I, I really think it's unfortunately up to the, you know, the, the, the security executives doing a better job of shaping the minds and hearts of, of these executives and showing them that this is an equivalent risk to what you said, you know, along the lines of a tax problem or, or something else. But again, I think we also have to have a realistic open mind that there are going to be situations where businesses just are, are going to take a risk and we might not like it. Yeah, I agree. But in that case, I think it's the onus of the security folks to have explained it well. Absolutely. Make sure that the executives are accepting the risk, that they understand what they're accepting. Definitely. Definitely. And and uh, and also the you know the executives the security executives have to understand it well themselves. And you know I I I think that's not always the case either. So. Yeah, that's true. All right, let's uh, let's move on to the next story, which I, I really don't know what to say about this, other than every now and then you come across a story which I just don't know what to do with. So, so this story comes from Computer World. The title is "How to Avoid a Big Data Security Breach," and I absolutely love the title, and that's why we have it. It hurts. It, it, oh, it hurts. It hurts. So. So this is the uh, this is the story equivalent of a truly attention deficit child. <laughs> Look, squirrel. <laughs> it, it it's very very difficult to, in my opinion, at least, it's very difficult to read, um, and there there actually isn't really any advice on how to avoid a big data security breach other than to say uh, for an organization such as Telstra, who this 
author apparently works for, the security and privacy around large aggregated data sets must be the driving concern. You need to do it with due diligence. Insightful. Uh, uh, terribly insightful. The other quote I had or, uh, that I saw, which incensed me a little bit, and maybe probably more than it should have, and it was, uh, it was regarding Target. He rails on Target about, you know, I can't find it right now, but he basically says, I don't understand why Target has all of this data about their customers. Why do they keep that data? And, you know, if they didn't keep that data, they wouldn't have lost it. Well, you know, I'm a shopper at Target, and I know exactly why they keep that data. It's so they can send me offers, so they can... They can. They know exactly what the heck I bought. I mean, it's there's no secret here. That data is incredible, incredibly valuable to them. And marketed, you know, marketing folks kill for that kind of data. Yeah. So I did. So yeah. So basically, the the point of this article is, if you have a bunch of information collated together, keep it safe. That's that's what I took away, and actually. I think it's 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 maybe more fundamental than that. Um, if you have a bunch of aggregated data, you should probably figure out if you should make if you should keep it safe. I'm so glad we're spending valuable show time on this. Yeah, yeah. Well, so kids, this is uh this is an example of I think how not to write an article. I do like that every paragraph is one sentence. <laughs> yes. I do. Yes. <laughs> I. Uh, Hey, you know what? He's he's written more articles than I have, so I gotta give him that. But... There, there you go. There you go. And by the way, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm sure you're a great person. I have it's just this article is not great. You threw this in here for the home players doing buzzword bingo, didn't you? I did. I did. Mm-hmm. I was trying to get you to say the word cyber, but and <laughs> I don't big... want to put I don't want to put a dollar in the tip jar. <laughs> right. Speaking of cyber, our next story comes from Reuters. The title is U.S. Industry Too Complacent About Cyber Risks, Say Experts. And, and so there's a, there's a gentleman named Dale Peterson, who is the CEO of a company called Digital Bond. And Digital Bond is a really uh, prolific player in the industrial controls security space. And so... Wait. Wait, let me stop you there. Okay. So the person that is driving this discussion makes money selling security solutions for the companies he's talking about aren't secure enough. It's crazy, I know. Am I correct in this train of thought? Yes. Okay. Now, that being said, are his points still valid? Possibly. And, okay. And, 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 you know, that is that is exactly one of the things that I wanted to talk about. I'm, I stole your thunder. I'm no, 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 no. You, you, you are spot on. And, and probably you did a better segue than I could have. But, the, you know, the issue that he's bringing up here is that uh, the, the executive teams of these particular utilities and critical infrastructure players – are kind of they kind of have their head in the sand with respect to the level of risk that they're accepting by not investing in better 
security controls because they don't understand how things can horribly fail. And so the kind of the byline here is it's going to take some really major attack, some major destructive attack in order for people to change. And, you know, the, 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 the other byline is that, boy, unless there is that major destructive, as they call it, a major destructive attack, it's going to, it's going to require the government to get involved to to force their hand. We're from the government, and we're here to help. I thought it was the phone company. Oh. <laughs> I kind of agree with him, although I don't like it. I think because we haven't seen a major issue yet that was born from hacking into a major utility company, a lot of these utility companies probably have a false sense of security right now. Or there is a potential that the risk is overblown because we haven't seen it in the real world yet. Uh, you know, I once was at a talk. This was probably 10 years ago, at least, given by Marcus Raynham, uh, cool guy. He says, as long as it's still easier to walk up to a power station and blow it up with a backpack, that's what the bad guys are going to do. Yeah. So, again, the bad guys are only going to have to be as sophisticated as they need to be. But we are getting closer and closer to a point where it is more effective to go, you know, the cyber route, as much as I hate to use that term. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that being said, I don't agree that the right way to fix it is to probably have the government set compliance because this goes back to our compliance versus security debate that we had on, a, on the show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that's going to become the bare minimum these guys are going to do and they're not holistically looking at the true threat landscape and truly mitigating that risk to an acceptable level. Yep. But, you know, he's basically putting out uh, PLCs uh, are highly vulnerable. And they're not. There was no built-in security in any of these SCADA systems or any of these control systems. And he's right. I, I kind of think we've been lucky thus far to not have something major happen. At least nothing we know about. Yeah, you know. Now I'll admit that you know I'm I'm, I'm kind of a old and kaji, but I used to do a lot of embedded system programming with PLCs and whatnot a long, long time ago. And I also did a little bit with power systems and and whatnot. I suspect that it's not necessarily coincidental that we haven't seen a really big thing yet. Um, I I suspect it's not quite as integrated as everybody wants to think it is, but I suspect that that is on its way in a hurry, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. We're getting closer. And and so so I, I suspect the importance of it is going up. And maybe certain certain areas are are more integrated and automated than others. You know, but I was at I was at a power station not long ago and the the all of the controls there were original from the fifties. Which is not necessarily a bad thing but in and of itself. No, no. I mean, it's uh, kind of like the whole Battlestar Galactica thing, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, you know, gigantic switches and and uh, you know mechanical synchronization and you know lots of uh, lots of old stuff, which was very very reliable. The problem is that I think um, I think it, it doesn't take it doesn't um, 
give the benefit that some of this new automation brings, and I suspect that over time those will be replaced and everything will be added to the collective, and then that's when we start to have big problems. But you know, we had the we had the issue that kind of flew under the radar last year in California, where someone apparently popped out of a manhole and and popped some uh, some rifle rounds into transformers. Not just someone, multiple someone. Mul- well, not just not just a few rifle rounds, lots of rifle rounds. That is actually a very interesting story that's gotten very little coverage. There's much more to that story than I think we know. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I've always I've, uh, uh, power systems are are very interesting me, uh, to me. I started off life as a wannabe double E, uh, and and uh, yeah, I've always thought that that is the that is really the way. If you if you wanted to disrupt power, that's the way you do it because those big transformers you see at those at the substations, those take months and months and months and months to replace, to replace. Yeah. We don't build them uh, here. They're, they're all built overseas. They're not, they're not sitting around in a warehouse. You're and not, they're all custom. So, you know, not that we're trying to give the bad guys any ideas here, but it's an interesting vulnerability point. Yeah. I think that the, the I guess the point is not all, not all risks are, are online. And, you know, when you, when you're thinking about, you know wh- wh- where you're vulnerable. You know, think about hey, can somebody can somebody br- does my data center have a glass window in it? <laughs> you know that that they can smash out or or drive a car through the wall or you know. No, it's true. It's so. uh, it's interesting. So you know, I think the key is on this one is take it with a little bit of a grain of salt because there's obviously some Absolutely. vested interest in the FUD marketing here, but I. At the end of the day, it comes back to: Do you understand the risks in your environment? Yeah. The good news is in all this that you know the government released that cybersecurity framework, which is going to totally solve. Oh, that's right, it's not. Darn. Well, you know what? We need a working group to share information. That must be it. Yes. Like the retailers are put like the together. Reta- yes, just like the retailers. Because that, uh, that will say, oh, no, that's not going to save us either, is it? The previous 71 attempts didn't. This one will, but though. This one, this information sharing group, absolutely. So this has been the Cynical Cybersecurity Podcast. <laughs> oh. Hey, hey, you knew what you were getting when you invited me on the show, buddy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. So... So you know, I, I but I, there was another thing that I wanted to to bring in here on this particular point, and that is again the byline was that according to according to these people, the executives of these companies aren't going to act until they see something really bad happen. How true is that of of regular you know regular security? You know, I, I know in the case of disaster recovery. Companies don't invest in in disaster recovery programs until they've had a disaster, and and people don't get serious about incident response programs until they've been breached, and you know, and so it goes. This is not unique, in, in my opinion, in any way to this environment. It is it is pervasive. Agreed. So. This could have a huge impact, though. Absolutely. Absolutely, and you know that kind of goes to the uh, the discussion we had on a, a, a story a couple of weeks ago about how 
some insurance companies are not willing to insure these companies, these um, uh, utilities, because they're not they're not doing what they need to do. They're kind of uninsurable. Yeah, indeed. And, and and speaking of insurance, I probably not on this podcast, but at some point I want to uh, I want to talk about insurance. I, I had a really interesting Twitter debate with someone about that, and uh, some some interesting thoughts there. So anyhow, the last story we've got comes from IT Pro, which is another site I've never heard of. It's the uh, title is "Employees Steal Data to Make New uh, to Make Good Impressions in a New Job." And this is pretty uh, pretty enlightening. They say 95% of internal data thefts are from an employee who's looking to get an advantage once they leave. I'm throwing a I'm throwing a flag on this story just so you know. <laughs> That's fine. It, it 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 you know, I don't know who Mishkan Dereya is. I don't know. I didn't look them up. I think they're a law firm that that did this survey. And they do talk they do work in some of the um uh Verizon data breach report. But they say so, you know, of that 95%, 30% are leaving are using that data that they stole to start a competing business and 65% are uh, going to a competitor with that information um they they again cite some of the date uh, Verizon data breach reports that 70% of intellectual property theft happens within 30 days of an employee announcing their resignation and i can tell you firsthand that aligns with what i've seen I would agree with that statement. It always makes me – here's the thing. Once someone has given their resignation, it's probably too late. It's – I don't understand why they let employees who have access to sensitive data stick around after they design. I know. Yeah, I'll work out my two weeks. Fine. Certain positions, walk them. However, they've already figured out they're leaving, obviously, and they probably have already done whatever it is they're going to do if they're going to do something bad. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of it's kind of that horse has already left the barn, but you might as well, might as well not make it easy for the dumb ones. <laughs> well, exactly right, and I think in, in the recommendation in the Verizon report, if I if I think back to that report, was that once someone puts their resignation in, you should probably monitor their their activity and access of of confidential data. Well, I would say you should be doing that anyway. Yeah, well, I I, I mean, don't disagree. Good, good DLP and good access monitoring, and yes, you know, because again, if they're truly intent on this, they probably have already grabbed the data before they resigned. Well, and especially if they know that's your policy, that you, yeah. that your policy is to uh, is to limit once you limit your access once you you announce your intent to resign. The one stat I did find really interesting was this, uh, you know, the methodology they're saying. Despite the easy availability of USB memory sticks, CDs, DVDs, etc., the most common method for theft was email. Over half, 56% of cases involving the use of attachments in email, uh, oh, I'm sorry, over 56% of cases involved the use of attachments in email outside the company. All 26% of these took the physical route and printed out the info. USBs and memory sticks account for just 6%. So a lot of folks are just emailing stuff home, although I think Dropbox probably has a big chunk of this too that isn't included in here right now um, and similar 
services. Yeah. Yep. And I, I don't know if that's because they're the the detection mechanisms they have around this are, are you know, core, are, are, have a better likelihood of catching things being emailed or, or what have you. But I agree. You know, I, I see personally a fair amount being exfiltrated by email. What they didn't mention is, uh, is uploading to external websites. And Bob has seen that a bunch. Sure. You know, especially with people about to leave. I mean, they just, for some reason, they just start uploading crap to websites like you would not believe. And uh, what did surprise me a whole bunch was 20, 26% were taking it out by hard copy. Uh, yeah, I, I have trouble with that stat. That uh, It's got to be lawyers. <laughs> That's all I can say is it's got to be lawyers. I so, mean, you know, in my mind, the big key takeaway from all this is don't wait until they resign. If you don't have a system in place to watch for this... That's right. If you care. I mean, well, let's back up. If this is important to your organization, if this is a big risk for your organization, if this is something you should be doing, don't focus on what they resigned. I know. Just you know, fire them right, fire them proactively. Well, okay. <laughs> sure. All right. I'm, I'm, I'll be right back. i got to fire somebody. But uh, – well, you completely threw me off with that one. Sorry. No, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's, uh, yeah, I must be off my game tonight. Uh, that being said – this is the straight up malicious or otherwise insider threat. Whether it's a piece of malware sitting on their box going to cultivate your information and send it out, or they're doing it on purpose, either way, you got to be watching for it. Right. Mo- monitor it regardless of, I think your point is monitor, monitor it regardless of whether or not they've announced their resignation. You should be watching for it. It's true. So I did have a, a late breaking story I wanted to throw in here. Okay. I, I don't want to. Jump ahead if we're not. No, no, we're done. Go ahead. So there's two I wanted to mention, actually. One is, and they're both Snowden-related, one being the news coming out that a lot of Cisco gear was intercepted by the NSA and physical hardware beacons, as they called them, were implanted in these devices. They were repackaged professionally and, and sent on to various hard target customers. There's a lot of interesting things with that. One, I think our ability to sell our tech overseas has probably been crippled for the next 10 years. I think that was a huge mistake. I think it's wrong for our government to be doing that. But at the end of the day, how are you going to defend against it? And this goes back to the same thing that I think we've been saying for a while, that really advanced malware whether it become in through a, a zero day that hasn't been seen before or whether it's embedded in your hardware still has to communicate out somehow. That's right. And what I'm puzzled by is as far as I know, nobody has spotted this traffic, identified it back to a piece of hardware, especially an embedded system like Cisco Box, and publicized it. Yeah, that that was actually something I wanted to mention too when you when you brought the story up was it, it is curious that we haven't heard anything about that now is that because it isn't all that common? Right, it could be highly selective. Um, you know, or is it because it's really freaking sneaky 
or you know that it doesn't it doesn't go out it goes out through some side channel you know we we know for instance that uh one of the one of the reports talked about how their exfiltration technique actually used radar which was i thought pretty freaking creative yeah yeah that's really tough to defend against right i you know give it up uh i mean unless you've got serious levels of funding but if this is somehow these sorts of things are utilizing some sort of network traffic to get out, shouldn't a good anti-malware strategy pick that up? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, looking looking for uh, anomalous traffic sources and destinations, mm-hmm. absolutely. I, I, I mean, it's it's tra- at the end of the day, it's traffic. It's got to come and come and go. Now, the the one thing we don't know is, you know, the extent to which the adversary and i use the adversary in quotes would you know would have what would appear to be legitimate looking sites in at their disposal for command and control right the other thing i'd say on this is we don't know the level of complicity of cisco or other vendors for this matter dell and others were mentioned that's right let's assume for a moment they were not complicit why are the shippers getting off scot free out of this conversation Absolutely. <laughs> right? Because once it leaves Cisco's docks, it's in the hands of a FedEx, a DHL, a UPS, a freight carrier. Yeah. Right? Somebody's handling that gear as it's traversing. Why, where are they in this discussion? I mean, they just, NSA shows up and says, thanks, we're going to borrow that package for a while. And they're like, okay. Well, I, that. That is an interesting question, and I suspect it has a lot to do with you know the the whole national security letter issue and and whatnot. You know where you, you sometimes you can't talk about it. it as much as you might want to talk about it. You just you just can't. And so I don't I don't know. We're completely speculating here. Yeah, we are. Um, you know, I do know. I, I I did think about this a little bit. And I did dabble a little bit in in the export business, not not in any uh, you know shady way, but I do know that in certain cases you actually have to obtain export licenses and and, and you know register exports with the government. So it's not necessarily unsurprising that the government would be aware that you're exporting a particular piece of technology through a particular shipper at a particular time. Absolutely. Um, and so you wouldn't necessarily have to have Cisco, you know, or, or any other technology manufacturer be aware that this was actually happening. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not even sure that the shippers would would necessarily know, depending on where it was intercepted. You know, there's there are uh, you know there are you know I, I don't know right. This is there's we're starting to get into really wild speculation, but we are. But, you know, the one thing I, I do think is fair to say is that this is going to really negatively impact our ability to sell our technology overseas. Mm-hmm. And for good or ill, that's probably going to put more pressure on the government to stop this than much else has thus far. Uh, there, this is, uh, as, as Jim Cramer would say, it's a you know, government for, by, and of the corporation. And so... <laughs> yeah, not, not to get into politics, but, I mean, this... This really hurts. This really hurts. You know, the other thing that I wanted to bring up very briefly, and then we'll go, is um, the details of the Lava Bit shutdown finally came out and was published in The Guardian. And um, 
No, I, I'll spare the rant on the political side of this, but I would highly suggest you go read the article. It is pretty, pretty interesting about what exactly happened and how it happened. Mind you, it's only one side of the story. It could very well be fabricated or exaggerated, but uh, the name of the story, it's on The Guardian, Secrets, Lies, and Snowden's Email, Why I Was Forced to Shut Down Lava Bit. As far as I can tell, it fits well with the facts as I know them, uh, and it's uh, one of those things that my takeaway for our audience is if you're involved in an organization that in any way could be served with any sort of compelling legal document to turn over any information, you probably should have legal counsel lined up ahead of time before they show up. Absolutely. That is a good point. Because uh, he was screwed because he couldn't get a lawyer quick enough. Yeah, and he wasn't, he wasn't allowed to announce that he was looking for a lawyer. Right. So if you're involved in any sort of anything that can be privacy-related or you know, critical secret data related for your customers, anything where the government might walk in with a search order one day, be prepared for that. And it's a sad, sad commentary that we need to uh, talk about that. I, the, I do have to say, and maybe it's the 151 talking, but there was a quote in there, which I thought was just fantastic, that the FBI alleged that the customers of LavaBit had no expectation of privacy. Yeah. Even though the service was purchased intentionally for the purposes of privacy. So any, anyway, you know, it's a, it's not a, this is a, this is something that's way beyond, um, you know, my, my ability to control or, you know, we're, we're, uh, this is a, this is a, a really deep political knot that, that we're it in. is. Yeah. And that's why I'm just saying from a business continuity standpoint, if you're involved in anything like this, have legal have legal representation on standby. Yeah, yeah. Know where you're going to go. Don't don't wait until it happens. That's that is a good, very good point. If you do have questions or, or comments, you know, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. We're we're uh, you know we're pretty nice people. We love uh, having email exchanges, and uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at defensivesec. You can follow Mister Callet on Twitter at lurk. You can follow me on Twitter at maliciouslink. You can find back episodes and all sorts of other great crap like links to show notes and whatnot at the website www.defensivesecurity.org with the U.S. spelling, not the British spelling. And with that, I bid you adieu for another week. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. Yeah.